There is a, a verse that has been going through my mind in thinking about Easter. And it is this verse. Quote, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. End of quote. That was read to you in the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. It is found in verse 19 of chapter 15. That chapter happens to be a very, very famous chapter. It is the chapter on the resurrection. But notice what he said here. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. The word pitied in Greek is eliosnos, which comes from the word elios, which means mercy. It can be translated several ways. In fact, it is in modern translations. The translation that I read from you translated that word as pitied. It can also be translated as wretched or miserable. That's what got me to thinking about the verse. I find this verse to be an extraordinary statement on the part of the apostle. So I ask, why would Paul, of all people, write a thing like this? We are to be pitied among all people. Is Paul talking, taking back what he wrote in Romans? Let me just read what he wrote in Romans. Uh, it came later, but let me read what he wrote in Romans about the same time as 1 Corinthians. He says, quote, We are rejoicing in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love, poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Now, what is Paul saying here? He is clearly saying that there is benefit in being a Christian if there was no resurrection. There would be a benefit in this world. He is saying that Christianity provides a benefit in this world. But why would he say that we are to be pitied more than all? Well, he wrote another verse, too, that has to do with this very same theme, in which he extols the virtues of Christianity for this life, even if it's apart from the resurrection. He says in 1 Timothy 4, 8, for physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for the present life and for the life to come. In other words, he is clearly stating that there is a benefit to being a Christian in this life, even if we only live in this life. Now, there is no question about that. Clearly, the Apostle Paul uh, states that there are blessings in this life that flow from Christianity. 
and from the fact that Jesus walked the face of this earth. Now, let me give you an example uh, from a modern day writer. Rodney Stark is quite a sociologist, and he is a sociologist who teaches at Baylor University. He has quite a stature there. He's called university professor. That means he has free reign to do about whatever he wants. He hardly teaches unless he wants to. He mainly does research. And Rodney Stark has observed some things about Christianity. He has studied its rise. He studied its relationship to reason. He studied uh, the benefits of Christianity in the Middle Ages into the modern world. And he discovered in those lands where the gospel was most welcome, there is a material and intellectual benefit simply because the gospel was received and it changed people's worldview about life. For example, America has the greatest research universities on the face of the earth. England has some, but very few. Germany has some nice universities. France has one or two or three. America has one in every state, a land-grant institution with great research facilities. We have our great private universities. Almost all of, them, all of them, by the way, in New England, established to train clergy for the ministry. We have great benefits. We have better health care than almost anywhere around the world, at least for the time being. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. We have tremendous benefits in this life. We have almost housing for everyone. Not everyone, but greater than almost any other nation on earth. And our government is stable. Isn't that interesting? You say, well, that's just happenstance. Well, wait a minute. Look at the lands that most received the gospel of Jesus Christ and compare their material and intellectual benefits to others that have not. I think you'll see a difference. Here's what Stark wrote specifically. Why was it that also many, uh, although many civilizations had pursued alchemy, it led to chemistry only in Europe? Why was it that for centuries Europeans were the only ones possessed of eyeglasses, chimneys, reliable clocks, heavy cavalry, or a system of music notation? Is that happenstance? I suppose if you look with eyes that rejects Christ and his gospel, you would say, oh, we were favored because, well, the weather favored us or the land favored us or we have more resources. But if it's a Christian, you clearly see that there is a correlation between the gospel received in this world and its benefits now I say, why does Paul say then we are most miserable? Well, we are most miserable, and I've, I've puzzled over that. Why would he say such a thing? Well, I believe I've actually discovered why he said such a thing. In spite of all the benefits that Christianity has brought to this world, in some sense we are to be pitied more than all people because we have embraced something. We have embraced something that only lasts for this world. 
if Christ be not raised from the dead? And I believe I have discovered the answer. And the answer, I believe, first appears in Ecclesiastes, in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the third chapter. And I only recognized this about two years ago in studying the book of Ecclesiastes. This phrase struck me in the book of Ecclesiastes. He, says the writer, Koheleth, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. That's the phrase. He has set eternity in the hearts of people. St. Augustine essentially says the same thing. He was a man of a great originality, but he was not the first to come up with this idea. St. Augustine in his confessions, in the very first chapter, in the very first book, says this, You, O Lord, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Let me remind you that no other creature on this planet has eternity implanted in their souls or hearts. No other creature. And testimony to that is that we alone talk of God. We alone build houses of worship. We alone have the notion of an afterlife. It is not to be found in the animal kingdom on this planet. No such notion of the afterlife. Now, you might defend some as I've had students to do so in the past, but there is not one shred of evidence. As I remind them, I've never seen a dog go out and build a church. No notion. Not there. I've always said, maybe the dog thinks I'm God. It's about as far as it goes. And the benefits that derive from me in giving them food. Only human beings have a mind with consciousness, conscious thoughts that, that have the sense of transcending ourselves and of transcendence itself. Even in the midst of a horrible and painful life, many still cling to the very shred of life, for it is most precious and have the hope of eternal life. Yet, you know, the sad thing is we can do nothing we can do nothing to break out of our finitude, our limitations. We can do not a th we cannot do a thing. No matter how much science progresses, it cannot keep us from dying. As the writer to the book of Hebrews says, it is appointed unto every person once to die. That is the way life is. Even though we have this in our heart, think about that. And yet, we don't have it within our grasp. Now, in some sense, that's a kind of torture, isn't it? It reminds me of uh, my days of teaching or, or volunteering to teach uh, prisoners uh, in a course that had some credit uh, from one of the universities in the city. And uh, as I would go and teach those 17 men, all of them had life sentences, for they had committed a capital crime. Let's suppose for a moment that you were a criminal locked in a cell with no doors and no windows. 
and no fresh air. You still have within you the desire to live. And you no doubt would dream while you were locked in those doors never to get out. You would dream of freedom and of springtime and of love. Of a field full, filled of a field full of flowers. Of bees and butterflies going around. I think the more you think of that, the more frustrated and painful it would get. Is that why Paul says we are miserable? Because we have eternity in our souls and we can do nothing about it to extend our life. We are trapped, we're caught, we're finite. Philosophers who do not believe the gospel, existential philosophers, often talk about the finitude of being human, the limitations. And they say that in itself brings a certain misery. They call it angst in Germany or ennui in France or despair in the English language. We have this in our heart beating within us and yet we cannot break out and do anything about it. We are trapped. Trapped. However, Paul doesn't stop there. In the next verse, he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, listen, so in Christ all will be made alive. Paul is saying that God who has put eternity in our hearts as also through the risen Christ put the hope of eternal life within our souls as well. The God who put eternity in our hearts has also put in our hearts the hope of eternal life in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The God who put these longings into the heart also makes them a reality through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Paul and all Christians, the resurrection, the resurrection has reversed the process that runs from life to death. And now, since the resurrection, the process runs from death to life. That's why we have hope. That's why Christians celebrate Easter like no other day, I think, on the calendar. We, we think we have been liberated from prison. And that we can indeed have the hope of being fulfilled this eternity within our souls. He goes on to say in that same passage in verses 24 and 25, For Christ must reign, that is, in this life. And in the next, until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Do you get the message? It is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that death has been defeated. The grave cannot hold us. Christ is our pioneer who has paved the way for us. Everything in life looks different in the light of the resurrection. Let me share with you about three things that I think the resurrection brings to us in this life now. 
Look at the blessings of the resurrection. Let me tell you what it does. It enables us to live more vibrantly and passionately in this life. Yes. Our hope of the resurrection actually enables us. It kicks it up a notch, to use an emerald phrase here. It kicks life up a notch. It enables us to embrace life with passion and vitality, knowing that we have a hope of eternity with our Lord. This, this charge that Christians uh, were disloyal was a, 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 because they had a hope of eternal life was a charge made against Christians in the 4th and 5th century when the Roman Empire was kind of crumbling, but not yet. Those who were not Christians made a charge against Christians. They said, listen, they kind of made the charge, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. That kind of thinking. Your hope and your allegiance is to Christ. So how are you going to be good citizens here in this empire and support the state? We believe we have traitors in our midst. We have people who will be disloyal uh, and not be good citizens, given the chance. St. Augustine in the City of God takes up that question and he argues in that great long work about 1,200 pages in English. But he takes up that charge and he says this, oh, you have it just exactly backwards. You're wrong. Because we have the hope of eternity and our Lord Jesus Christ in our heart and we have allegiance to him and we call him Lord, that makes us better citizens for he taught us to be honorable and to love all people. He taught us to respect the government and we are not bad citizens. We are good citizens who obey our Lord and we are more profitable to this empire than we would otherwise be. For our citizenship in heaven makes us more loyal to our citizenship here. My friend, I have no doubt that the resurrection of Jesus Christ enables believers to be more passionate about life, about the beauty of life. Think of what Paul says. He has given us all things richly to enjoy. The arts, music, wonderful things. It's interesting that almost all of these things that we've done today originated within the context of Christianity and nowhere else. Science did not come from India, and those people are as smart as we are, or if not more. But it originated in the sphere of Christianity. Think of all of those benefits. There's another reason I think the resurrection blesses us. We're able, we're able, if you will, to have a meaningful life through worship. We're gathered here today to do an exercise that many people would say is absolutely meaningless. Listen to some of the most virulent critics of Christianity and see what they say. Here's what they say. Christians get together at least once a week and waste their time worshiping a God that does not exist. It's a pure waste of time and good money. Is that what you're doing? Well, in a sense, if it were not for the resurrection, I suppose that charge would at least have more legitimacy. 
But my friend, it is through the resurrection that our worship has double meaning. It has great significance for our life. For indeed, all the prophets declare what you worship, you will become like. Every prophet in the Old Testament knew that if you worshiped an idol or you worshiped yourself, you were circumscribing your life and making yourself small, even not distinguishable from the creation itself. But in Christ and through his resurrection, we have a larger vision and a hope in our life. Praise be to God who has put eternity in our souls. One final thing here. We've suffered a lot of loss in this church in the last year and maybe you have in your family. And I think of all the people that have gone through difficult times, trying times. We've lost loved ones. We've lost opportunities. Some have lost their health and their strength. Some years ago, I was preaching in a church over in Connecticut, and James Ward was there. You, you may not know the name James Ward, but I'm told he writes about half of all the songs in Nashville. He's a PCA elder. And um, he is a tremendous musician. Uh, he wrote a very famous song, many, that he sings himself. One is called Morning to Dancing. He took the title from Psalm 30, 11. O Lord, you have turned my wailing or mourning into dancing. There is nothing in this world that can turn your mourning into dancing finally if the resurrection is not true. Think of that. Nothing. Not one breakthrough that we can think of that gives you one shred of hope. Losses are losses. Bygones are bygones. History is in the past. And your losses will remain losses if there is no resurrection. That's why Paul said you are to be pitied more than all people. Alexander Hamilton, and I close with him, and Aaron Burr, you've heard of them. Everybody with a smattering of history have heard of Alexander Hamilton, particularly from New York. Well, at the age of 49, he did a very stupid thing. He was provoked into a duel with pistols with Aaron Burr. Now, Hamilton was a pretty good guy, bit of a rogue, but a pretty good guy. Aaron Burr, not much can be said of him, except he was a in the lineage of Jonathan Edwards, the one wayward sheep. And as the story goes, in Weehawken, New Jersey, they went out to duel to settle a matter. It was customary not to shoot the other person, just to shoot to miss. That was what a gentleman would do. The duel was over. Hamilton said before he went to the duel, I, I will not shoot. I will shoot to miss. And if I have a second 
shot, I will do the same thing. Burr, who had a burr in his saddle, shot Alexander Hamilton right here in the lower part of his stomach. It ricocheted around in his ribs and went out. He suffered horribly for about a day and a half. He was taken back to lower part of Manhattan. He called for the Presbyterian minister to come and serve him communion and do some of the regulations in the church. The Presbyterian minister refused. So he called the Episcopal minister down the street and he came. But he made him confess his sins. Confess your sins. Dueling is wrong. And he did. He served in communion. Now, my friend, that is a meaningful act, a meaningless act only. A meaningless act if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead. There is no forgiveness of sins unless he's raised from the dead. We're still nailed to the cross. Resurrection is a standing miracle. At the heart of Christianity is a miracle. If it is not true, we are to be pitied. But Paul says, praise be to God. He has been raised from the dead. Let me give an invitation today. If you have not received Jesus Christ in this way and embraced him as your Lord and Savior, I hope this is the day you say, Lord, I believe Help thou my unbelief. Amen.